If everybody's okay with it, we're just going to go ahead and start. I'm actually not sure if I'm supposed to wait on somebody or not, but I think we're not going to wait on somebody because we have a lot to talk about, and I'm hoping that we'll have a little bit of time at the end for questions that I don't cover. And it's really exciting to see all you students here, as well as a few of us old-timers. Uh, I am Dr. Tina Slusher. I am an associate professor at the University of Minnesota and do critical care at Hennepin County Medical Center, pediatric critical care, and uh, have been going to uh, Africa since 1989, so since before many of you were born, uh, and have also spent a little bit of time teaching in Asia and in Haiti. But by, by and large, my experience is in sub-Saharan Africa. And I call myself schizophrenic and, and hoping that some of you in this room will be full-time missionaries. But I have a feeling that some of you are called, as I am, to be schizophrenic, which means spending part of my time in a very, very high-tech situation, high-resource, high-tech, and then about a third or more of each year in low-middle-income countries. So what we're going to talk about today is just kind of an overview of pediatrics and where it is today. And I want to challenge you on some issues that you guys will be the movers and changers on. Uh, several years ago, the Millennium Development Goals were adopted by most countries in the world, and Millennium Development Goal 4 and 5 relate specifically to children, that being to reduce child mortality and to improve maternal and child health by about two-thirds by the year 2015. Well, I don't think we're going to meet that, nor does anybody else, but we are trying. As we look at pediatrics and we ask ourselves, how are we doing, there's a couple things that we usually look at. And one of those is the neonatal mortality rate, which is the number of deaths per thousand live births. And then the more common or more standard that we use in pretty much all of our indicators is the under fives mortality rate or the number of deaths per thousand live births again. Well, how is the world doing? Well, as you can see on this map, the countries uh, in the dark blue and medium blue, like ourselves in Canada, Australia, we're doing pretty well. And we're down to less than five uh, deaths uh, in, in those regions. But if you look at much of sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia, they're still in the 150 to 200 deaths per thousand live births. So they've got a long way to go to catch up with us. You look at all the data in the world, you'll see that we have come a long way, especially if you go back to the 1970s when there were about 17 million children under five dying every year. 
By 2001 or so, we had that down to about 10.6 million. And in our most recent statistics from 2010, it's about 7 to 8 million children under 5 dying. Now, I put those two circles in for you to see that although the, the deaths are certainly down, the percentages of children dying from the individual problems like pneumonia, neonatal mortality, haven't changed very much in these last uh, 10 to 15 years. If you look at it a little differently, you'll see that pneumonia is indeed the biggest killer of children under five, followed closely by diarrhea, preterm births and complications, birth asphyxia, other infections, malaria and sepsis, and it's certainly in children under five. You'll notice things like HIV AIDS are actually relatively low compared to the more important killers in children of things like pneumonia and diarrhea. Well, how can we make a difference in that? The felt uh, immunization impact is about a 25% reduction in childhood mortality if we could immunize against all the major killers like we do here in the U.S. As you can see, things like measles still kill about 4% of the children worldwide. Diarrhea, much of that rotavirus, about 17%. Pneumonia, much of that from pneumococcal and haemophilus influenza kill lots and lots of children. And again, why do the kids die? Well, again, pneumococcal disease, we immunize all of our kids against it, but it is the leading vaccine-preventable death, followed by rotavirus, measles, and Hib. Hib used to be one of the leading killers, but has come down quite a bit, and you'll see why in just a minute. Neonatal deaths, about 4 million in the year 2000, about 3 million in 2010. Probably one of the diseases that we've made the biggest impact in is neonatal tetanus. You'll notice in the 2000 graph, it's about 7% of the deaths, as it was when I first started going to Nigeria in 1989. But now we're down in the 3% range with neonatal tetanus. But that's 3% too many because neonatal tetanus is easy to prevent. You simply immunize the mother at least twice during her pregnancy or you do clean cord care. And if you do either one of those, then her baby will not get neonatal tetanus and will not die with neonatal tetanus. Again, uh, there were about 12 million deaths in 1990. That's down to about 7.7 .7 in 2010, about a 
3.1 million of those deaths are neonatal, 2.3 are postnatal in the first one year, 2.3 million in the one to four year olds. Almost half of those deaths occur in sub-Saharan Africa and less than 1% of the deaths occur in high-income countries like our own. Many uh, practicing pediatricians and family docs will, will not lose more than one or two or three children in their entire practice. Most uh, physicians practicing in Africa will, in a hospital practice anyway, will lose at least one child a week and many times one child or more a day. Uh, again, the global decline is about 2.1% from neonatal, 2.3% from postnatal, and 2.2% from childhood mortality. Well, it's not all about survival, okay? There are things that impact the growth and development of children. There's two main indicators that affect children who do survive, and those are stunting and absolute poverty. And it's estimated that about uh, 200 million children under five fail to reach their full potential for cognitive development. This is, this is because when you are stunted, uh, not only does your body not grow and develop normally, neither does your brain. You'll see in this picture two children, and that little fella standing beside his mother over here is, is about two years older and a head shorter than his baby brother. He is stunted. At a, which is, by definition, less than or equal to two standard deviations of the mean length for age. He's a victim of chronic malnutrition and likely recurrent infections when he was sent away from his mother before the birth of his younger sibling. Absolute poverty, that little fellow lives in absolute poverty defined as less than a U.S. $1 per day, and that accounts for multiple problems, including late enrollment in school. In one study in Uganda, they found out that children who were living in absolute poverty were 10 times less likely to start school on time. There's much data that says education is important, and simply educating mothers drastically decreases the under five mortality, regardless of their income level. Well, we've made a lot of progress again in some diseases, polio being one of those. Uh, there are still Three countries where polio, live wild polio, is being seen. Those countries are Pakistan, Nigeria, and Afghanistan. Until about a year and a half ago, India was on that list. But India has had no cases of wild polio in the last year and a half. 
Unfortunately, countries like Nigeria continue to see it. In Nigeria, there's a huge problem in the northern part of the country where uh, the rumor was started that there's birth control in the polio vaccine. So the northern Muslims will not allow their children to be immunized because the belief is that the Christians are trying to keep them from having babies by giving the polio vaccine, which is, of course, unfounded and unfortunate. All right. Another disease that we've made a lot of progress in has been introduction of Hib vaccine. When I was a student and a resident and a young physician, we were losing lots and lots of children from Haemophilus influenza type B. It's almost non-existent in the U.S. today thanks to, thanks to vaccines. And you can see in the top part of this graph that uh, in 1997, we and Canada and a few other places were the only people that had introduced the HIV vaccine. As of 2008, thank heavens, we have a much wider coverage for HIV vaccine. And as you saw on the earlier graph, HIV has come down to being one of the first five killers to much, much lower. But we still haven't reached the whole world. We are doing much worse with the pneumococcal vaccine. Again, the dark blue have it, and the gray mostly don't have it, which again includes most of sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. Again, the reason likely that pneumonia is still uh, the leading vaccine-preventable disease. Well, one of the young ladies here told me she was from El Paso, from the medical school there. And she met uh, Dr. Don Myers, or works with him. And many years ago, Don uh, introduced me to this first concept about practicing evidence-based medicine in low-middle-income countries. Don is actually quite famous for saying, bad medicine, in Jesus' name, is still bad medicine. And if I could leave you students with anything in the whole wide world from this lecture, if you don't remember anything else that I say, I hope you'll remember Don's quote, bad medicine in Jesus' name is still bad medicine. This is not a theology lecture, so we won't spend a lot of time on it. But I think good medicine honors Jesus, and good medicine gives us so much of a chance to share his name and his message. Bad medicine doesn't. And so think about that in what you're doing, and really strive to practice evidence-based medicine. It can be done. It's imperative and it's possible. And as John Bull will tell you, he deserves it. He really, really does. All right, so what is evidence-based medicine? Well, this is one graph that comes from a whole bunch of people, including the world health organization, Save the Children and others, 
where they looked at the potential lives saved and stillbirths prevented by 2015 if we had 99% coverage of the things on the bottom. Now, because those things on the bottom are absolutely impossible to read, I flipped them and wrote them along the side for you. And they include simple things like giving folic acid to mothers before they become pregnant to decrease the incidence of neural tube defects. Insect-treated bed nets, very, very cost-effective in reducing both mommy mortality and morbidity from malaria and also saving countless lives in infants and young children from malaria. Insect-treated bed nets don't cost very much. Syphilis detection, tetanus toxoid, which I already mentioned to you, to the mother. Detection and management of hypertension, interuterine growth reduction, uh, late uh, deliveries, and then the biggest is providing OB care to the mother. And then for the baby, antenatal steroids for preterm labor and neonatal resuscitation. Most of these very, very simple and very, very doable and evidence-based ways for you all no matter which profession you're in, to make a difference. Another biggie that we've come a long way in terms of evidence-based is what we do with breastfeeding and HIV mothers. Breastfeeding is in many, many ways superior to formula feeding, but of course we thought for a while that we should not be breastfeeding babies whose mothers were HIV positive. That was until we started looking at the data and realized that in low middle income countries, more babies were dying because they weren't being breastfed than were getting HIV uh, because the mothers didn't have formula that was acceptable by that, we mean that many mothers wouldn't, wouldn't use formula because then their neighbor knew they had HIV. So it wasn't acceptable to bottle feed. It wasn't feasible. They couldn't get the formula. They couldn't get the water. It wasn't affordable. It cost a whole year's salary to feed the baby, and they had nothing left to feed their other five children. It wasn't sustainable. Again, couldn't afford it, couldn't get it, and it wasn't safe. They didn't have access to clean water or clean cups or whatever they needed. And for that reason, it turned out that using formula, even in HIV-positive mothers and baby pairs, was a bad thing. So we realized the hard way that if formula feeding is not affordable, feasible, acceptable, safe, and sustainable, we need to be breastfeeding. And the current recommendation is to breastfeed all babies exclusively for the 
first six months, but to continue breastfeeding until you have a affordable, feasible, acceptable, sustainable, and safe alternatives, at least through the first 12 months of life. But, of course, that saddened many, many people because we were giving HIV to some babies with this practice. Those who work in HIV are really excited at, again, the current WHO recommendations, and that's a more affordable way to use antiretroviral drugs for treating pregnant women and preventing HIV infection in their infants. There's now two options. Option A consists of daily nevirapine to the baby through the entire period of breastfeeding until about one or two weeks after. That is by far the most affordable, which makes it easier for many low-middle-income countries to do. Or option B, which is to give the mother antiretrovirals through her entire uh, breastfeeding period until, again, a few weeks after. And then... uh, to, you know, then you can transition the baby to the other foods. And then option B plus just says you keep the antiretrovirals going in the mother even if her CD4 count doesn't indicate she needs it. And with this, you can reduce the mother-to-child transmission of HIV down to about the same level we have in the U.S., so definitely less than three to five percent. Another piece of evidence based, and some of you, again, I'll just pick on my pharmacy students since they got here early, and I met them. This is an area where they can be of a big help. We're now starting to look hard at the susceptibility of the infections in newborns. You notice that newborn death is still huge on the pie chart. Part of that's because the current World Health recommendations for treating neonatal sepsis are still to use ampicillin and gentamicin because ampicillin and gentamicin are cheap and widely available. But look at this study from Tanzania. If you looked at Klebsiella and E. coli, which were major Uh, pathogens in newborn infection, they were resistant to genomycin 68% of the time and 90% of the time to ampicillin. And to make matters even worse, the resistance to their second-line treatment or cephalosporins was still almost 50%. Now, doesn't take a rocket scientist to imagine that if you have resistant organisms to the antibiotics you're using, you're much, much more likely to die, as she found in this study. The blue line is actually the cure rate, okay? So if your antibiotics were susceptible, I mean your bugs were susceptible to the antibiotics, you generally got better, and if they weren't, you generally died. This is a similar study that was done in Iran 
where they also looked at the susceptibility pattern of their organisms in neonatal sepsis or infection and again found very similar results. It's scary because we don't have very many options out there to treat it, but some of you guys need to be working on finding those drugs for us and helping us do evidence-based medicine. Another biggie. Now, this won't mean so much to you uh, new people yet, but this is a study looking at giving fluid boluses for severe infection or shock in children. Standard of care is taught by the Pediatric Advanced Life Support course and most other pediatric emergency courses is to give uh, children with severe infections 60 mLs per kilo of normal saline or other fluid very quickly and very early in shock. Well, they did a huge study, a huge study in Sub-Saharan Africa. They had over 3,000 children and they randomized them to either receive a bolus or not receive a bolus. And guess what? The kids who received the bolus of either normal saline or albumin did worse, not better, not what everybody thought they would do. And they were actually doing it to see if albumin was better than normal saline or vice versa. Nobody expected the kids who got no bolus to do well. And they actually did better than the other two groups. Well, we're all scratching our head. This is so, this makes no sense. No sense to us to those of us who practice. So we and our African colleagues are scratching our heads. We don't know what to do with this data. But I think most of us are going to bolus slower. We, we may not throw away our bolus, but we're going to be more careful because of the evidence than we were before. All right, pneumonia. You saw that that was the biggest killer. And you can see the gray areas where pneumonia is rampant. Well, uh, studies, again, evidence-based, showed that you didn't need x-rays. You didn't even need a doctor. You certainly didn't need labs to diagnose and treat pneumonia and make a huge difference. Many, many <laughs> lives have been saved by training village health workers to count respiratory rates and to administer oral antibiotics to children with fever, cough, and a fast respiratory rate. But that led to a lot of children getting antibiotics that didn't need it. So looking at it further, if you added simple markers, things like asking, has this child had a lot of trouble with uh, respiratory distress previously? Does the child respond to bronchodilators like albuterol? If you add just a simple things like that, you can help differentiate pneumonia from asthma, bringing down the overuse of antibiotics from about 78% to 26%, which is huge and will help 
decrease that problem with newborn sepsis and all of our bugs being resistant to our common antibiotics. Make sense? All right. Oral rehydration therapy. Okay. Uh, if I could change one thing medically for you, this would probably be it. Uh, I said if I could change one thing in your thinking, it would be Dr. Meyer's statement about bad medicine in Jesus' name being bad medicine. If I could train one thing and only one thing medically, it would be to encourage you to learn how to use and to believe in oral rehydration therapy. If you look at the data, it only about 4% of children who were dehydrated with gastroenteritis needed IV fluids. That means that enteral therapy could be successful in about 96% of the children who were dehydrated. Uh, I have a really funny story from the mission conference in Thailand, the CMDA, where one of the MKs, the missionary kids, were dehydrated very close to that needing IV fluid. And his parents came to me and said, whatever his name was, Johnny. Johnny won't take his ORS. Well, I sat down with Johnny, put Johnny in my lap, got me a spoon, and gave Johnny his ORS. And in a matter of hours, Johnny was rehydrated. When I got the thank you note from his folks several weeks later, you thought I'd done open heart surgery <laughs> and saved the kid's life. And all I'd done was sit down and say, I believe in ORS. Johnny will take it if I give it to him. And it worked. All right, but unfortunately, uh, about 60% of the time when we should be using oral rehydration, we are not. All right, another thing, probably my biggest interest uh, right now in low-middle income countries is severe newborn jaundice. It probably accounts for about 8% of the neonatal deaths in Africa and additionally is a leading cause of deafness and cerebral palsy in low-middle-income countries. In America, jaundice almost never kills, and jaundice almost never leaves babies with cerebral palsy. Why is that happening? Again, evidence-based, okay? This is a recent study that hopefully is being submitted this week where we looked at the irradiance level of phototherapy units throughout Nigeria, southern Nigeria. It, for those of you who aren't yet in the clinical years, if I told you that uh, your baby in the NICU was getting phototherapy, we would want the irradiance to be about 30 microwatts per centimeter squared per nanometer. Just plain old-fashioned conventional phototherapy would be at least 8 to 10. And if you look at that data, almost all the phototherapy units we tested in Nigeria had an irradiance of less than 8 to 10. And only one unit had, was in the intensive phototherapy. Big reason that kids are still dying from newborn jaundice in Nigeria. Well, again, 
you're going to be if you do missions in places where you don't have all the supplies and equipment. And one of the things I love to do in those settings is look for ways that I can continue to practice evidence-based medicine with what I do have. And this is from a chapter that I helped write in the American Academy of Pediatrics textbook of global child health. And this is bubble CPAP, okay, which is used all throughout America and in our nursery right now. It's one of our QI indicators. Is How are we using it? Are we using it when we should be? This can be built with an adult nasal cannula, a water bottle, and a source of oxygen or airflow. All right? And it's the same thing as CPAP that we use in America with a $10,000 or $20,000 machine. Okay? And it's buildable. This is homemade phototherapy. Again, uh, good irradiance, homemade, built to last. And as you young folks who really know how to use your Blackberries and your iPhones and your iPads and etc. etc., there's a lot of help from e-tools in low middle income countries. And you can pull up example after example after example of ways to use e-phone or e-health technology. There's a, one here from the World Health Organization site about uh, fighting malaria. There's a couple with surveillance systems uh, for HIV treatment and the likes of that, uh, treatment for malaria, etc., etc. And you can find hundreds of these. And it's one of the ways to get funded these days is to develop a, a phone application uh, for use in low-middle-income countries that puts them in touch with experts who can help them manage uh, people better or follow the compliance better than they could before phones. Well, are we teaching differently these days, and how does that work in Africa? In America, most of you either have been or will be through multiple simulation courses that help you learn how to treat uh, people before you actually do it on a real person. Uh, multiple, multiple simulations. Uh, this is because studies have shown that doing what you did today will lead to a few points that you'll remember, but most of it you'll forget. But if you actively participate, you learn better. And that's because we as adults need to know why we should learn something. We don't want to learn something just to learn it. We need to be self-directed. And, of course, we have a lot greater volume and quality of both experience and knowledge and we want to be taught differently than our children. Well, how does simulation work in global health, okay? Anybody priced a sim baby recently? Anybody? Anybody want to tell me what they cost? Yeah, maybe $150,000 for some of the really, really fancy ones. 
Can we do that in Africa or or most of Asia? Absolutely not. But some of us, again, are crazy enough to think that we can do simulation of a different sort with low-tech supplies in Africa. One of those guys is a guy by the name of Mike Pitt in Chicago, and he looked at developing simulation in Tanzania, both to be used by his residents and the pediatric residents in the hospital in Tanzania. And as you can see, both from the American residents and the Tanzanian residents, this was a very positive experience. There were no negative responses from either group. One of the newest and best, and I should have brought my, my, my baby. I forgot, to, I forgot to bring her. But one of the best is uh, helping babies breed. Uh, most babies will respond to just routine care, but a very few, like in the 8 to 10 percent, need some extra drying and stimulation. A few in the neighborhood of 3 to 6 percent need bag mass ventilation, and almost nobody who responds to uh, Bag mass ventilation also needs chest compression. And as you'll remember, birth asphyxia was one of the leading causes of death in children under five. Well, this helping babies breathe consists of a, oops, sim baby. This sim baby can have a heart rate, can breathe, and can have an, an umbilical pulse, okay? And if you fill her with water, she weighs about what a real baby weighs. She comes with a couple wonderful things, including a reusable, boilable Ambu bag and mask, as well as a reusable and boilable suction bulb. And she can be taught using the chart that you see to mothers who can't read or write to traditional birth attendants who cannot read or write, or to those who can read and write. It's done in groups of six at the max, and it's done all throughout Africa and Asia with a strong focus on teaching bag mask ventilation. It's making a difference and hopefully some of you will be able to take Helping Babies Breathe to your communities in low-resource settings. Well, I want to finish with a story about one of my good friends and colleagues in Africa. She was part of a team, okay, to look at prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV in Africa. And this study was from was published in, I believe, the early 90s, and it looked at the use of single-dose nevirapine. Uh, and she had all the appropriate ethic, she and her team, all the appropriate ethic approval from the U.S., from her own country of Uganda 
and everybody else, and they said, go for it. Well, she was criticized in the Lancet for giving single-dose nevirapine when the standard in the U.S. and per WHO recommendations was to give full antiretrovirals to uh, the mother. Now, I'm going to ask you, again, this was a long time ago, okay? This was, I think, let me see if I can read it. Yeah, it was like the 1990s. How many think that Philippa was unethical for developing single-dose nevirapine? Raise your hand. How many think she was unethical to develop it and use it? Anybody want to spout off why she wasn't unethical? In the 1990s? Go ahead. She's exactly right. In the 1990s, triple antiretrovirals was not in any way, shape, or form available or affordable in Africa. Not available, not affordable. Single dose nevirapine cost about $4. Okay? Single dose nevirapine was affordable and was ethical in Africa, okay? Just breaks my heart that this happened to her. And she says next to her one significant thing in her family, this was the most uh, traumatic thing that ever happened to her was this criticism. Well, you can do the numbers. It's impossible to get exact numbers from uh, the literature, but over a, over half of the 1.4 million pregnant women living with HIV have received antiretroviral therapy. So about half the women who need it are still not getting it, okay? And if getting it means you have to get access to triple antiretrovirals, it may never happen. Single-dose nevirapine reduced the risk by 50%. So do your math, okay? If you can get single-dose nevirapine uh, and you save, and that's in one year, 7 million babies from getting HIV, have you done a good thing? Absolutely. Would it be unethical now? What does anybody think? Is giving single-dose nevirapine unethical in 2012? Some of you are shaking your head. It's not if that's all you have access to. Now, if you have access to what I talked about a minute ago with daily nevirapine to the baby or triple antiretrovirals to the mother, yes, it's unethical to give single-dose nevirapine in 2012 if you have access to better care. But in 1990s, that simply wasn't the case. However, there are some things that we do need to consider in ethical research in low-middle-income countries. That includes, does it address a problem identified by the local community? It's not okay to go and, and, and study a problem that only benefits us. 
is there a local IRB or ethics committee and what are you going to do if there isn't? What is informed consent? Okay, when I do studies in Nigeria, my IRB requires me to take a 5 to 10 to 12 page consent. Do you think that's really informed consent? Do you think my barely literate moms are reading through 12 pages, okay, that talk about all kinds of stupid things to them? No. So are they literate? Uh, Is the research benefiting the individual but may not benefit the community? Are they signing the consent because they want treatment? And then, of course, there's plenty of cultures where the males or grandmother or someone other than the mother is making decision for the child. What do you do about that? Is the treatment sustainable if it's efficacious? What is appropriate for that culture? Who monitors the safety of the study? Is it in collaboration with local colleagues? You'll see the poster there of one of my current research studies in Nigeria where we're looking at the use of tested, filtered sunlight phototherapy as a treatment for neonatal jaundice. My Nigerian co-PI, Dr. Alasanya, is critical to that research, and we believe that it is sustainable, and most of our Nigerian colleagues are pretty excited about it. We hope to take it elsewhere after we've proven that it's safe and efficacious. All right, I'll say thanks, and we have just a few minutes for questions. Yes. Yeah, if you if you're talking about the neonatal population, then then the AAP book has a great neonatal chapter that talks about treating respiratory distress in low middle income countries. Uh, for the best source uh, for the elder child, email me and I'll I'll send that to you because most of it's in my noggin. For the elder child, email me and I'll send you the best source. Oh, I'm sorry, I meant to tell you that. So instead of twenty to 150000 for a SIM baby in the U.S., that whole kit, including the autoclavable slash boilable ambu bag and mask and bulb syringes, $70. And that's the baby and the kit. Uh, a, you can, uh, email me and I'll tell you, but you get it through Laredale but you can find the site on the AAP Helping Babies Breathe on the AAP website. If you're ordering in masses, you'll want to order it directly through Laredale. If you're ordering it just for yourself to take, then you would want to order it through the AAP if you're just ordering one. Uh, My ethical bias there, though, is if you're going to teach it, you need to leave Ambu bags behind. And the ambu bags and masks cost $15 when you're using them in low-middle-income countries. You can't buy them for the U.S. for that, three-layer deal. And the bulb syringes are $3. Yeah? Yeah. 
She's asking about that Lancet study. Well, we're not sure. And if you pull up that study, you'll find 10 or 15 responses to that study and people who wonder why. Big part of it was likely fluid overload and pulmonary congestion in situations where we couldn't rescue them like we would here with diuretics or dialysis or whatever. Some of it we're not sure. And there's a lot of scratching heads. And even in Africa, most of our African colleagues haven't quit bolusing. They're just not bolusing as much. And they're being more careful because we're still totally bumfuzzled by that. But 3,000 you can't ignore. Yes? The Helping Babies Breathe bag has a pop-off valve, okay, and as uh, the new neonatal resuscitation guidelines for term babies say you absolutely can start with room air, and most babies are successfully resuscitated with room air, term babies. And in the NRP guidelines, they encourage you to blend in oxygen if you need it or to rapidly dial it down if you start with it and don't need it. But for low resource settings, most of the babies you can resuscitate, you can resuscitate with room air. And because of the pop-off valve, which doesn't have any way to occlude it, like our bags at home sometimes do, they don't usually get a pneumo. It's not, not, not been a problem. Okay. And you do spend a lot of time practicing, and that's one of your checkoff stations is are they ambu bagging or bag masking appropriately? Yeah. Oh, I don't know what I prefer. I'm going to ask my pharmacy students over here. Most of us are still starting with amp and gem because that's what we've got, but if as more of these studies come out, we're going to have to switch. Or because, because as she showed, in, if your babies are are 70% resistant to the organism, I mean the antibiotics you're using, they're going to they're going to die. So it's a real dilemma. And most of us will go quickly to a cephalosporin, uh, preferably cephatax if you can, not not. Uh, Ceftriaxone, as that's associated with jaundice. There are other things like your phloxins, but, uh, but yeah, don't know what we're going to do. It's a big problem, big, big problem. And WHO hasn't yet changed their recommendations. More studies needed, more pharmacies needed. All right, thank you. And if anybody wants to email me questions, I'm happy to attempt to find the answers, even if I don't know them. Alrighty. Question evaluation.